Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Earlier this week, Damar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills' safety, was released from a Buffalo Medical Center more than a week after he suffered cardiac arrest on national television during Monday Night Football. And now another Bills player is down. Tell exactly who that is. Maybe Hamlin. Well, I didn't see it live. My dad did. He was watching, and I heard him gasp. And then I ran down to see what was going on. And I saw him there standing in front of the television praying, along with millions of others. I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, because we believe... It was a universal response. Sad, we're angry, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you, and pray for... And on the field, as DeMar was rushed to a nearby medical center, the chaplain of the Buffalo Bills, Len Vandenboss, kneeled along with players, many overcome with emotion, kneeling in prayer, and holding hands. The image reminded me of a conversation I had with Pastor Earl Smith. He's the team chaplain for both the five-time Super Bowl champion San Francisco 49ers and six-time NBA champions Golden State Warriors. Before I talked to Pastor Smith, I learned that almost every NFL team has counselors or pastors available to their players. But professional football teams are not like most workplaces. They face intense scrutiny expectations of high performance, and a variety of emotional and physical stressors, including extreme injury. So how does one pastor to professional football players? By the time they get to a professional team, What I tell a lot of guys when they get to us, you're a professional because you signed a contract. Part of what I want to do is help you to become a pro. And a pro not just in terms of on the field, but off the field. A pro in terms of how you are as a son, a husband, or a father. Those become the things that I believe are important to me that I stress and share with them. Are the majority of players on the team, do they identify as Christian? Is there religious diversity on the team? What does it look like? There's religious diversity on the team. I would say maybe 30% or more. I I mean, I've never actually thought about it in terms of a percentage. There's failures that may identify as Christians. They may identify as some other faith practice. When they find out there's a chapel service, a mass service, or something of that nature, they make a decision where they like to go if they choose to go. It's not mandatory. And from that point on, you start to see who's a regular, and you start to understand what some of their particular needs are. And based on those particular needs, you start to minister to them accordingly. Mm. Football, they say the average expectancy of a player is probably 32 seven years. So you you basically are thinking about a young man that maybe is 21 or 22 when he gets out of college. And by the time he's 26 or 27, his vocational career has ended to some extent. So it's the, the expectancy of a player playing a long time is not really there. It's a very short window and you try to do what you can to assist while the window is open. 
I talk to the players like I would talk to my sons. I have sons, and I see each of these players that I speak to in the same realm as my sons. I would want to share the same information with my sons. I share with them and vice versa. If my sons were on a team, I would want someone to share practical information, but also information that would be encouraging and uplifting and helping them to be a better human being. Mm. So that's those are the same things I believe that are the mandate that I've been called to do as a result of being a pastor of a team. Pastor Earl Smith's approach to ministry is informed by his own journey, one that began with trauma. It all started for me as far as a career or whatever corrections was really me being a criminal. Wow. And I'm a gang member that at the age of 19, I was shot six times due to some drug deal and some other things that went, took place. I went to the hospital and my dad stayed, stood over me and praying. And he told me, you're not going to die. You're a rebel, but you're God's rebel. He's going to use you. I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me, he had something for me to do. And that would be a chaplain in San Quentin. That was in 1975. In 1983, I was hired as the youngest person ever to be a chaplain in the prison system. What kind of faith experience did you have before that trauma? My faith experience was my parents' faith. My father's faith was not my own. I went to church as a young person. I sat in the pews, yet I did not really grasp any of the things that were going on because they were not relevant to me. The things that were relevant were the streets, the gangs, the drugs, the violence that I was a part of. Once I was shot, then some of those things that I thought I was not paying attention to started to come back to the forefront. When I heard the voice of the Lord speaking to me, I realized who was speaking to me. And I laughed because I had always sat there thinking that he would never speak to someone like me, nor could he use someone like me based on the messages I had heard. And so that, that was that was my context of exactly what was going on when I was shot, where I was. It, it, was, it was a faith that was rooted in the faith that my father had. It was in the faith of the family. It was not my own faith. And as you would imagine, to have any kind of relationship, you must have your own faith. You have to have your own practice. That experience of coming from gangs and working with the incarcerated in San Quentin informs his approach. He is always looking for a way to connect, and often it's not in a church service. When I was in San Quentin, I learned early on that my job was not to only speak to the inmates that accepted who I was and wanted to follow in my path, but also to work with inmates that had no variance nor understanding our relationship with anything similar to what I was doing. So that's why I started a baseball team, and they were all guys who did not come to chapel, and that's why I coached the inmate football team, all guys that didn't go to chapel, because I believe that your presence cannot just be uh, mandated by or dictated by a building nor a structure. So for the players that I work with, I, I want to talk and deal with the players that are not. I, I have a lot of great conversations with players that have never come to one chapel service. Mm, you're and right. I enjoy those. 
you know, like the 49ers, we have a guy named Austin Moss, who's our director of player engagement. And he does an excellent, he does a fantastic job with these guys. And, and so it's not just so much the team pastor or chaplain that's responsible for working with them, but it's a team effort. And so I, for the league, for the NFL, there's, there's been really great strides in terms of what they're making available to the players. But I would tell you that the San Francisco 49ers are probably at the forefront because when they were doing things like this, when other teams weren't even considering it as something that was necessary. While the teams invest in supporting professional success on the field, I asked Pastor Smith how players manage the aggression that the game demands and if things need to change. Well, I I think that players may be encouraged to turn something on and off. And and there's a mechanism that's at play in a game that, which simply is for the amount of time that a a play takes place, you channel your aggression. You go back to the huddle and you get ready for the next and, and you sort of have to learn how to turn it on and turn it off. Those are also some skills that people have to have in our communities today. There are people that don't have the mechanism of turning it on and off. And so when they get angry or overcome with grief or violence or whatever may happen, they have no mechanism to say, okay, I need to, I need to tone this down. And therefore other things take place. Players have been trained from peewee football on that this is sort of what you do. The thing that I think happens with peewee football, we need to have a day where we just talk to the kids about nonviolence because we're so busy talking to the kids about striking the guy and going through the guy when you tackle and we because if you don't then the kids don't understand our conversations turn from the personal to the symbolic as the team pastor i wondered does he view football as a religious experience Some say football is different. It's almost like a a religious practice. Some argue sports fans are themselves engaged. It's not partisan. It's like everyone comes to the stadium almost akin to a house of worship, and it's like a religious practice. When you hear that, what do you think? I hear you laughing. (laughs) Well, I think it's true. I think that if you're in Alabama, it's either Auburn or Alabama. (laughs) And you can't go to both congregate. You can't go to both churches. You have to choose one. And, and and I'll just use that or Florida, Florida State, or Florida or Miami. And and those are your congregations. And so it's funny that you would say that. Yet it's so true that people are locked into the mindset that if you're in the Bay Area, are you an Oakland Raider fan or are you a San Francisco 49er fan? If you're in L.A. right now, are you a Clippers fan? Are you a Lakers fan? They both play in the same arena. And so those are sport has that way of making it be a situation of them against us. Yet at the same time, 
I hear people saying this week, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Bay Area person. So even though I'm with the Raiders, I want the Niners to win. And so somehow or another, they cross the aisle for this particular game. And, and so that's the part that's really exciting to me is that tells me that the aisle can be crossed. Ah, and at this time, at a time in which the country is extremely divided in the midst, what hope do you have for Super Bowl Sunday? I hope the Super Bowl Sunday would be an example of the aisle being crossed. I hear so many times when politicians says, my friend on the left, my friend on the right, for my faith is not on the left or it's on the right, it's straight ahead. I'll give you an example in closing. I played chess with inmates in San Quentin, and they were all gang members. Majority were on death row. And when I played chess with them, I played with a black guy, white guy, and Hispanic guy every week. And these were all vowed enemies. Yet when I played with them and we called out the chess moves and the inmates in other cells heard the moves, they would make their own moves and they'd start to boo and they'd start to cheer and they'd root for that guy I was playing against. And what they didn't realize, even though they were enemies, the game that we were playing made them on the same side. And I believe that we can use that same structure, that same parallel to understand that it's possible to have our differences. It's possible not to agree on everything, but what are the things that we can agree on? And, and, and I believe that's really what the purpose of faith is, that we start to see what we can agree on. In this particular game, there's going to be a lot of people that are agreeing on a lot of things. They're going to scream and holler when a score is made or a great play is made. And they're going to high-five each other. And the people they high-five, they won't even know. Pastor Earl Smith is the chaplain for the San Francisco 49ers and the Golden State Warriors. He shares his journey in a 2015 memoir, Death Row Chaplain, Unbelievable True Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison, which is currently in film production. A portion of this conversation originally broadcast in January 2020. Friends, before we go, a little preview. In the coming weeks, we'll be taking a closer look at Generation Z. However you think about this generation, it's important to remember it's a large cohort and it's religiously diverse. And not surprising, they are not a monolith. And we want to learn a little bit more about how faith fits into their views about civic life. There's a new study out released this month by Springtide Research Institute, Neighborly Faith and Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement that sought to gather insights from one particular group, young evangelicals. The research surveyed 2,000 young people between the ages of 18 and 25, that is members of Generation Z, and found that young evangelicals are bucking trends. They are more civically engaged than their peers. And when it comes to who influences them, if you think it's social media or Hollywood, think again. Kevin Singer, one of the study co-authors and a leader in neighborly faith, explains. What does it actually mean to reach an evangelical and who is actually reaching them? Who is actually speaking into their lives in a way that influences them? And the biggest thing our study found far and away is that it is faith leaders. It is uh, pastors, associate pastors, all the way down to youth leaders and worship 
pastors and lay leaders. That is who young evangelicals are listening to. The big takeaway, it's hard to reach them. It's hard to get them involved, get them excited if you are not also in communication with, perhaps even in partnership with people of faith that are influencing them. It also definitely uh, calls into question, I think, the narrative a little bit that, you know, young people are all walking away from the church and, uh, you know, the church is, is, you know, falling in its, you know, attendance numbers and it may not even exist so far as we know it in the next 10 to 20 years. I think young evangelicals are bucking whatever trend that is. And it appears they're still in pretty close relationship with people of authority in their faith context. They are uh, affecting their beliefs on some of society's most hot button issues, the kind of things that, you know, you're hearing talk, talked about in the news. In addition to clergy, young evangelicals identified public leaders who shaped their point of view. And the findings, well, they surprised me. Of the leaders that young evangelicals are listening to, it is Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Ben Shapiro, and Joe Biden. So those are four particular leaders. Um, now, things change a little bit when you ask them, not just if you're listening to them, but do you generally agree with them politically? Now, Donald Trump was number one, followed by Bernie Sanders, Ben Shapiro, Joe Biden, and Elon Musk. There is a lot to unpack here, and I'm looking forward to sharing an upcoming episode in which we dive deeper into the data and in conversation about what it means to be a member of Generation Z in our diverse, multi-faith democracy. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>